read that dates somewhere back uh, to 300 or 200 or in the 100s uh, A.D. So this is, this is what believers, what Christians have believed for a long time. And we want you to be well established in that. There's, there's another motive for this series, and it's, it's missional, it's evangelistic. And that is that we, we live in a community and in communities that uh, have many, many thousands of people who have grown up in either Roman Catholic or mainline Protestant uh, fellowships or denominations in which the Apostles' Creed is recited week after week after week, and people know the words of the Creed by heart, but in many, many cases have never actually heard the meaning of the words, never heard the truth that is expressed in those words. And we want to encourage you to find folks like that who know the tradition, who know the words, but maybe don't know the meaning, and to invite them to this series so that they can hear uh, a fuller expression of the gospel, who God is, what we believe about God, what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have hundreds of these invitation cards available as you leave here uh, this afternoon. Please grab some and this week uh, make the rounds and give them to as many as you can. Well, let me pray. Father, I thank you for this moment when we are in your house, we are your house, we are your temple, we are your dwelling, and where you have promised to come and to be with us and to make your presence felt and known. Oh, how I pray that in the hearing and preaching of your word, you, you really will make your presence known. Help us to have ears to hear. Help us to have hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is our last in the series through the Psalms or in the Psalms this summer. We've done 18 messages, 18 different Psalms, uh, and I've chosen as our last Psalm in this current series, Psalm 133. This is a psalm, as you can tell from Arnaldo's reading, that, that highlights and celebrates unity as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I have chosen this psalm for a couple of reasons. One, because unity is always important to talk about. But two, because it gives me a chance in behalf of your pastors to publicly thank you and commend you as we draw toward the close of our second year of existence as a church to commend you for your spirit of unity. This isn't flattery. This isn't just empty words. Believe me, there's hardly a day goes by when we do not say thank you to God for you and for your commitment to be united in Christ and in the gospel and in the mission. They, they say that change is hard for people. People don't like change. And I hear that it can make people really cranky to go through change. And if that's the case, then there's probably good reason for a lot of you to be cranky. 
Because over this past couple of years, change has been with us all the time. I was thinking about it this week. Here's what's new. In the past two years, there has been a new church for every single person in this room. Everyone in this room has moved into a new church setting and family in the past two years. There's been a new location, not once, not twice, not three times, if you count covenant, four times in the last two years we have relocated. There has been a new pastoral team put together. There are new community group leaders. There has been a new way of doing church for many of us. There is a new worship time at four o'clock in the afternoon, which for some of us has been rejoiced in, and for others, not so much. It has been a new combination of worship styles. There has been a new assortment and variety of human beings and cultures. Way back at the beginning, some of you will remember, our mission statement was worshiping God and welcoming all with gospel truth and neighbor love. And in fact, we have had the joy of welcoming all. All different kinds and colors and shades and cultures have come into the life of the church. And this has been new. This has been a change. And with it has come other changes of style and approach and all of this. There are new experiences of varied political persuasions and cultural expressions. It's all new. It's all new. And if people don't like change, then everybody in this room has had lots of reasons to not like what's going on. And yet, here you are. And yet, you're still leaning in, you're still pressing on, and we praise God for you. We thank God for the unity. How good and pleasant it is. I'm here to tell you as pastors, it has been good and pleasant to pastor you in these last couple of years. How good and pleasant it is when brothers, sisters dwell in unity. Please hear that as a praise to God, but a gratitude for you. And what has begun must continue. What God has given to us, remember Paul says to the Thessalonians, when it, when it comes to loving one another, I don't need to teach you how to love one another, but I want to remind you to increase and abound. And when it comes to unity, folks, I don't need to teach you how to be united, but may we increase and abound. And may it be that this psalm will help us to that Here's here's how I'm summarizing this psalm. In the family of God, in the family of God, unity is a gift that we have that leads to a joy we can share if we make it the home where we live. Unity is, in the family of God, unity is a gift that we have 
that leads to a joy we can share if we make it the home where we live. Let me open that up for you. In the family of God, unity is a gift that we share. This is taught to us here in Psalm 133. I don't know if you noticed as Arnaldo was reading the text, how much from above to us below language there is in the psalm. The the psalm uses phrases that remind us that unity and the blessing of unity comes from above down to us. Verse 2, unity is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard. On the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Notice the direction of these phrases. It is from above down to us. And, and scholars look at it and say, yeah, David was intentional here. He was making a point. That unity, the sweetness and the joy of unity is a gift from God. It is something that comes from God to us. From above, down here, below. It is a gift that we have. It's not something we have to create. It's not something we have to manufacture. It is something already ours. And we see that, don't we, in the opening phrase in the opening verse, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Notice what he calls us. He calls us brothers. He means brothers and sisters there. He's, he's doing what Bible writers do all the time. Using the phrase brothers, brothers and sisters to refer to people of faith. Those who are trusting in Christ. Those who are following God. We are brothers. We are brothers and sisters, whether we are experiencing the joy of unity or not, we are in fact those who have already received a bond, a family bond in Christ. Paul in Ephesians 4 commands us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he goes on and says what? For there is one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one spirit and one body and one God and Father of all who is in all and through all and to all. And what's he saying? He says, we are already one. Now live like it. We are already united. We are brothers in faith. We are those who through the gospel. This has already been expressed today wonderfully. Through the Gospel, through Christ, through the person and work of Christ, we are already one. We are already family. We are already brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And and friends, it is the only way that the joy of unity can be experienced is if God does something in us and to us and for us first. It's only as God makes us into family that we can actually live that out. Because I don't know if you have noticed this, but we humans have a really hard time getting along with each other. It's, it's two human beings are like oil and water. I mean, okay, pick any two human beings and put them together. And apart from a miracle, they're going to have issues. 
They're going to, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in order for there to be peace on this planet, there either have to be laws written to punish those who violate the peace, or there have to be weapons stockpiled to threaten those who might want to cause trouble. Why? Because, or there have to be contracts drawn up long and detailed and filled with legalese because, well, two human beings over the long haul left to themselves will not get along. Nations will not get along. People will not get along. Ethnicities will not get along. It just ain't going to happen. So the fact that we already have this gift that has come down to us from above, that we are already brothers in the Lord, sisters in Christ. This gives us hope. We can do this. Because God has already united us. In the family of God, unity is a gift that we have that leads to a joy we can share. But you... I want to be happy. I want joy. I want blessing. I want fullness. I want a richness of life, a blessedness of life. This, this psalm teaches us that unity is a gift that we have that leads to a joy we can share. There's all kinds of joy language in Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. It is pleasing. The words actually speak of it is lovely. It is delightful. Oh, it is, it is sweet. It is pleasant. It is joy-giving. It is happy when people dwell in unity. He goes on and says it's like precious oil or perfume that is on the head and then runs down on the beard. And on the beard of Aaron, it runs down on the collar of the robes. And you know, I, th- I think we probably have a little hard time trying to catch on to the, uh, the imagery here. I mean, we're not usually into oil this way or, per, you know, let me just pour the oil. Some, you know, some people, I guess, you know, just pour the oil on and just let it just kind of drip down into the beard and then drip off the beard down onto the, onto the clothes. And, you know, it's not normally how we think of joy and fullness and blessing. But in this culture, oil was, was seen as a, as a symbol of blessing. And, and the idea that there's so much oil that it's, it's not just dabbed on the head. It's not just sprinkled on the head, but it's poured onto the head. And it's just overflowing and flowing down and and touching every part of the person. This is an expression of abundant, overflowing blessing. And the psalmist is saying, when brothers dwell in unity, it's like that. It's an experience of abundant and overflowing blessing. And then he goes on in verse 3 and says that it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Hermon was the highest mountain of Israel, and it has long been known as a place where the dew is, 
is heavy and, and there is a great amount of it. In fact, there's a lot of snow on the mountain and, and there are some that actually think that this is referring not just to dew, but the, the overflow of the melting snow as it comes down off the mountain and it refreshes the nation and it blesses the nation and it, it nourishes the ground. Whatever the exact meaning is, you get the idea, dew and refreshing water. David says, when brothers dwell in unity, it's, it, it's like that kind of experience. It just, ah, it's just good. It's just good. Then he goes on from there and says in verse uh, 3, that there in the place of unity, in the place of, of, of love, in the place of active brotherhood, God commands a blessing. A blessing is a gift that brings joy. He enriches us. He fills us when we're united. He refreshes our hearts. He smiles on us. God likes it when we're united. And God responds to us with favor and with smiles when we dwell in unity. And then David adds what may be a bit of a surprising conclusion here at the end of verse 3. It says, there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. What's, what's he saying? He's saying that unity is, is life-giving. That unity sustains and preserves our spiritual life. That life that God has put inside of us is, is watered and nourished by unity. It's as we dwell together in love and unity that our Faith grows and our faith continues and our life is preserved. Unity does all of that. It enriches us. It it refreshes us. It replenishes us. It brings God's blessing to us. Unity is a gift that we have that leads to a joy we can share. If we make it the home where we live. If we make it the home where we live. Verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is. When brothers dwell in unity. When they live in unity. The word speaks of remaining, abiding, enduring. Like unity is a home and you move in and you settle down and you stay put. The author is saying to us that unity, unity is a gift that we have that can lead to a joy we can share if we make it a home where we live. This is, this is a call to commitment. This is a call to endurance in unity as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And endurance we need. I wish there were a way, don't you, to wave a magic wand and make disunity and division and strife and fractured human relationships just disappear. Wish there were a way that we could just wish things better. 
But the reality is, as long as we live in this world, as long as we live with our broken hearts and our flawed hearts and our sinful and selfish hearts, our unity is going to be tested and brotherhood is going to be challenged. And, and we're going to need to move in and settle down. We're, go- we're going to have to commit to the long haul. One of the reasons that we as a church have and as pastors have talked about unity so much in these last couple of years, is that we realize that the enemy wants to destroy what God has started. We are conscious that the enemy is a divider, and he's a killer, and he's a murderer, and he loves to murder churches, and he loves to divide Christians, and he loves to to fracture relationships. And we are aware that the only way that we are going to experience the ongoing blessing of God is if we live in unity. If we make unity our home. If we dwell in it. And this is a challenge at many levels. But we recognize that And this is, again, this is review, but it's important to review. We recognize that the diversity and the diversity of race, the diversity of class, the diversity of of cultures are just the very things that the enemy has long used to divide and to destroy. Did you know that the first church squabble in the history of the Christian church was over race. Did you know that? First church argument that almost led to a split was over racism. In Acts chapter 6, the Hebrew widows were being better treated than the Greek widows. There was a racism issue going on in the New Testament church, and it had to be addressed by the gospel. It has, there are major parts of the New Testament that talk about the fact that the church is all different kinds of people brought together. And because of that, there is great risk for division. There is great risk for disharmony. And there is constant need to maintain the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. And so... It's important for us right here, right now, to understand what the gospel does for us. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, rescues us not just from hell, it rescues us from hatred. It it rescues us not just from God's wrath, it rescues us from our own wrath. Our wrath toward others, our wrath over others. The gospel is what reconciles us to God and reconciles us to each other. Listen listen to the scriptures. In in Galatians chapter 3, Paul puts it like this. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. 
through faith. Notice that. You are all sons. That means sons and daughters. You're all children of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. Every time we read that text, we ought to go, wow! That is astonishing. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, nor male nor female. We're all one in Christ. We're all children of God. We are reconciled through the Gospel. It's, it's I think, even more stunning over in Colossians 3, where Paul writes, here, that is here, that is here in the Gospel of God's grace, Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. I I want you to notice those terms. They're all first century terms describing historic, ever-present human distinctions. He says, there are neither Greeks. The Greeks in that day were considered the elite, sophisticated, educated people. There aren't any Greeks in the church, Paul says. There aren't any Jews in the church. Or no distinction between Greek and Jews. The Jews were the religiously privileged, the culturally proud. They had lots of knowledge about God and they were proud of it. And then he says, there is no circumcised. Those were the ritually pure. Those were the culturally set apart. They were the churched. They were the religionized. And Paul says, nope. No longer a distinction there. He says, the uncircumcised. Those were those that were racially and religiously outcast. They hadn't gone through all the proper channels and all the proper rituals and all the proper formulas and all the proper religious stuff. And then Paul says, there aren't any barbarians. Those are the uncultured, the vulgar, the uneducated, the unsophisticated, the brutish. And then he adds another category, the Scythians. The Scythians were barbarians on steroids. The, 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 the Scythians were people who, there's actually, I, I read it this week, there are actually historical references from way back in the day to the Scythians Uh, that indicate that they were among the first people uh, to drink alcohol without diluting it with water. I don't know if you realize this, but for many, many years, thousands of years, humans diluted the alcohol with water. The the Scythians said, no, we want it straight. Yeah. they They were known to be drunks. They used to gather pot yes, and burn it in their tents and were potheads. They had female warriors that used to ride horses and the females and the males were known to scalp all their victims and and it was a brutal, ruthless, uncultured, drunk, pothead culture. But some of them became Christians. 
And Paul says, in Christ's church, there are no Greeks, Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythians, and then he adds slaves, those structurally and systemically oppressed, those economically disadvantaged, those racially despised, those militarily defeated. There aren't, no, not in Christ church. That's not a distinction here. It's not going to work here. And then he adds the free, referencing the ones with all the rights and all the privilege, enjoying full independence and opportunity. Those categories sound familiar, don't they? They sound familiar. But Paul says in the church, Christ is all and in all. Folks, look around. See all the people here? All very different. But Christ is in everyone who believes. Christ unites us. Christ makes us one. And we as God's people need to realize that this unity is a gift that we have that leads to a joy we can share if we make it the home where we live. There needs to be a commitment. There needs to be an enduring commitment to walk in unity, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So let me close very quickly with just, just a, a, a few suggestions for us taken from Scripture. A few suggestions that can help us to to dwell in unity, to continue as one as the body of Christ here at Risen Hope Church. So here, here are eight. I'm going to run, these, run through these quick. Number one, move all the way in. Move all the way in. Dwell together, not just geographically, but emotionally and relationally. Move in, settle down, stay put, for the long haul. And watch what God does. Blessed are those who dwell in unity. Move in. Move all in. Number two, gather for worship. Gather for worship. At the beginning of the psalm, what does it say about this psalm? It is a psalm of ascents. Remember, we've talked about that before. A psalm of ascents was a song that the people sang as they were ascending the hill of the Lord to worship God. Interesting. As they were coming together from all directions, they sang about unity. And gathering for worship is, is both an expression of unity and it unites us. It's that moment where we all come together. We, yeah, we are the church. Yes, we are one in Christ. Yes, we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Gather, make this, make this a, a, a consistent, faithful expression of your faith. Come together as God's people. Number three, practice table love. Practice hospitality. Practice opening your home. Some of these we've talked about before, but you're going to hear them. 
from time to time. It is interesting in Galatians chapter 2. Interesting is not the right word. It's sad. Galatians chapter 2. Remember Peter? Peter. Peter, the the great man, the the bold man, the, the leader of the church. Remember Peter was guilty of racism. Remember that in Galatians 2? He's, he's eating with Gentiles. He's a Jewish man eating with Gentiles. Some Jewish folks come along and he gets uncomfortable eating with the racially different and he moves over and sits with the Jewish folks. And Paul confronts him. Paul rebukes him. Paul gets in his face and say, you need to understand, these are Paul's words, you're not walking in step with the gospel. In other words, you're violating what the gospel is about. The gospel reconciles us to God, reconciles us across all the lines that divide us, and should make us willing to sit at the same table and eat the same food. Oh, brothers and sisters, there. The practice of hospitality is everywhere in the Bible, and it's this marvelous, marvelous, mysterious experience where you get together with other people and you share the same bread, you share the same food, you share the same table, and you begin to share your life. And you realize it just crosses over those lines, and you build relationally. Open your home, spread your table out, and let people in. Practice hospitality. Practice table love. Number four, listen, learn, and love. Listen, learn, and love. Ask questions, especially across ethnic and cultural lines. Ask questions and listen hard and learn much. There are people, and I hear this quite a bit, there are people who think that to talk about racial division is to be divisive. That we shouldn't talk about these issues and concerns because that's being divisive. No, no. Folks, talking about racism doesn't create racism. Talking about division doesn't create division. The division is already there. A few years ago, 10, 12 years ago, I had to tell my then 22-year-old son that he had cancer. I told you that before. When Joel contracted cancer, I had to tell him, I found out before he did, I had to tell my son that he had cancer. Me telling Joel that he had cancer did not give him cancer. Me telling him that he had cancer paved the way for a cure. Talking about it leads to a cure. Talking about it leads to a remedy. And may it be, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we do not hesitate to talk about things that are unpleasant, that are things that are challenging, things that are stretching, things that confuse us, things we don't understand, things we disagree about and maybe disagree about fiercely and deeply. Let's talk. Let's listen. Let's keep talking. Let's Keep listening. And let's realize what is important is not that I'm right. What's important is that I love my brother and sister in Christ. And I learn who he is and who she is. And I relate to them with understanding, with grace, with empathy, and with love. Number five, celebrate diversity. 
celebrate diversity. Don't just tolerate it. If we are going to dwell as brothers in unity and experience the, the blessing of God, we need to celebrate our diversity. I don't know if you've ever noticed in Revelation 21, it says that when heaven dawns, the glory and honor of the nations are going to be brought into heaven. And I understand that to mean that all the best and all the brightest and all the glory, most glorious that each nation, each culture has is going to be brought into heaven and there perfected and glorified. And heaven is going to be this everlasting, multi-omnicultural experience. How about if we get a taste of it now? How about if we celebrate it now, in November, the Saturday before Thanksgiving, we're going to have an international multicultural dinner. And we're going to ask everybody to come and to come dressed in a way that is consistent with their culture and their heritage. Come bringing food that comes from your... I was trying to think, what would I... What am I going to wear? <laughs> you know, my culture and heritage, it's, it's one of two things. It's, it's either shorts and sandals <laughs> or it's blue jeans and flannel shirt. I'm not sure which one it's going to be, but you know, it's, it's pretty boring. But I know some of you, the culture and the color and the beauty is just going to be magnificent. And we're having this event so that we can realize it's not just about tolerating each other. It's about celebrating each other. There are, there, are th there, are, there are songs here, and there are stories here, and, and there's food here, and there, and there is clothing here, and there's tradition here and, that are so varied and so beautiful that we want to... We want to bring it out of hiding and take off the covers and just let it shine so that we as God's people will realize here and now a little taste of heaven there. We are those who must go after not just toleration but celebration of one another. Now in order to do this, number seven, we must be gospel secure. We must be gospel secure. What do I mean by that? Romans 8 says to us, Who is he that can condemn? It is Christ who died. Who can judge me? It is God who has justified me. God has forgiven me and accepted me. And I'll tell you what, in my own experience as a brother in the Lord trying to learn, listen and learn across racial and cultural lines and divisions, the gospel has been a big help to me. Because it has helped me to be less afraid of being wrong. It has helped me to be open to listen to accusation without being defensive. It has, it has allowed me to listen knowing that what I'm hearing may prove me to be sinful in certain ways, certainly wrong in other ways. The gospel tells me nobody can condemn me. 
Nobody can accuse me. They can accuse me, but they can't make it stick. Because Jesus died for that sin already. They may be right in their accusation, but that doesn't even matter because Jesus died for that sin. And I've, I have boldness then to tell me what I need to hear. Help me to understand my own blindness. Because the Gospel covers me. Jesus covers me. You can't tell me anything that's going to condemn me. Oh, what freedom in the Gospel. You will not pursue Brothers, sisters, you will not pursue unity and love across the lines that divide unless you have a security in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will not pursue it. It'll be too terrifying for you, too guilt-producing, too shaming. You won't pursue it. But clothed in the righteousness of Christ, wearing across your heart and mind justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, you can face anything. Be gospel secure. And then finally, and for this I'm going to ask the worship team if they would begin to make their way up here as we close in communion this afternoon. Stand together, this is number eight, and finally, stand together at the foot of the cross. Stand together at the foot of the cross. What do I mean? What I mean is this, that at the end of the day, we all are equal sinners. At the end of the day, we are all equally guilty. At the end of the day, we are all worthy of condemnation. At the end of the day, nobody can say, you're more sinful than I am or I'm more sinful than you. We all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross says to us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The cross says to us, there is no salvation apart from the blood of Jesus. The cross says to us, you are equal sinners, but you are equally justified. You are equally guilty, but equally forgiven. And here on that level ground, we meet at the foot of the cross. That's why as we close today, it is so fitting if the ushers would come forward, it is so fitting that we close with communion. A message on unity is almost incomplete without communion. Because communion is not just a moment of fellowship with Jesus. It is intended to be a moment of fellowship with other believers. Remember in Colossians, the you can go ahead, ushers, if you would. The Paul said there's Greeks, there's Jews, there's circumcised, there's uncircumcised, there's barbarians, there's Scythians, there are the free, and there are the slaves. And in the Colossian church, they all gathered around the Lord's Supper and partook of communion together. Isn't that amazing? They all landed on level ground at the foot of the cross. That's what communion does for us. It reminds us we're all eating of the same bread. We're all drinking the same cup. We're all one. As you 
receive the elements. May it be that the Lord would focus your heart on the wonder of unity and give you a grace through the power of the cross, a grace to commit to make unity your home. And then we will sing and rejoice and close our worship today.